Good morning. Pleasure to be here and to see you this Sabbath. Uh, you'll notice the mark of the beast on my forehead. Uh, that is not a mark of the beast, that's the mark of pickleball. My first ever pickleball, pickleball game um, <clears throat> this last week, not even five minutes into it, I tripped over my big feet and landed on my head, my knee, and my elbow and I carry the marks with me. So I don't want this to distract you. This is just pickleball. Good to be here. I'm trying to see who you are out there, and uh, good to see old and familiar faces, good to see new faces here. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our gracious and wonderful God, how good you are to us, and we praise and worship you this Sabbath morning. Speak to our hearts and minds today. Draw us closer to the cross of Jesus. Draw, draw us closer to the King of Kings. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was coming across the parking lot this morning, it reminded me of a story. The story was that a church needed a new parking lot, like we needed a new parking lot. Um, there were ruts and cracks and potholes and mud puddles and everything else imaginable in the parking lot. And the church needed to do something about it. And they raised the money, had a meeting to plan how they were going to do it, and uh, called a work bee. And the people came out because they were tired of tripping through the parking lot. They lined up... At, an asphalt com company to cover the parking lot when they finished and they got out with their rakes and shovels and picks and hoes and uh, lawn mowers and cleaned the place up. Got it all leveled out, filled in the potholes, fixed all they could, mowed the perimeter and uh, trimmed it up nicely. Finally, the asphalt trucks came in laid the new asphalt, rolled it out smooth, and uh, the painters came and painted the lines. And within a week or two, the joyous congregation had each found their appropriate parking place. And every week, that's where they parked. And uh, the winter came and frosted over, but the parking lot was good. Uh, storms came, rain came, but no pot, potholes or mud puddles anymore and how joyous they were. Until one <clears throat> morning, late in February, they noticed that in one of the corners of the parking lot was a little bulge, just a little bubble forming. And so they thought of that and they talked about it and said, well, we'll have to get the rollers back in here and roll it smooth. And obviously we have a little problem. But they didn't, weren't able to uh, get the asphalt company in quick enough and by the next Sunday they noticed that that bulge had now cracked open and there were little shoots that were starting to grow and over the weeks they watched as the shoots got higher and higher and higher until about thanks about Easter weekend there was a nice bunch of Easter lilies that had grown up through the asphalt in their parking lot I like that story because it talks to me about the power of life. It talks to me about the power of the resurrection, of new life. 
We have just passed Easter weekend. I prefer Resurrection Holy Weekend myself, but we call it Easter in our world. And uh, we celebrate Christ's death on the cross, and we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. For some reason, historically, Adventists have not been really focused on the resurrection near as much as we should be. I think there are three, and I took history with Mark as a major at Pacific Union College, history and religion for me. And um, I think there are three, when I think of the great events of world history, the top three for me center in Jesus. The top three are the incarnation of Christ, the death of Christ on the cross, and the resurrection of Christ from the grave. And for some reason, we've been a little shy of the resurrection of Christ. Uh, maybe we were afraid that Easter Sunday would usurp the importance of the Sabbath. And so, as a community, we have not celebrated through our history Easter Sunday near as much as we should. And we've diminished the importance of that day. So I want to focus today in my thoughts uh, from um, the Bible on Easter, Easter Sunday, that resurrection day. And I think as we look at it carefully, we will find that it says even more about the Sabbath than we ever realized and talks to us about that which is really significant. I'm going to start my remarks in the Gospel of John. For those of you who know me and remember me as your pastor, I was stuck on John for years because I found there so many wonderful, sweet insights that are vital for us. And what amazes me, after 30 years of 40 years of studying John, I still find new insights. And I uh, found one today that spoke to my heart and that I hope will speak to your heart also. But I have become modern enough to have the Bible on my phone. And we'll see if we can get that brought up. And I invite you to use your Bibles as you see, feel comfortable, the one in the pew, if you like, or if your own Bible. And we'll start in John chapter 20. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark. I want to begin with still dark. This was the darkest weekend of the history of the world. Good Friday had turned out to be disastrous Friday. And you know the events. You knew what happened. Jesus crucified, murdered. Violently and viciously murdered. The, the dreams of the disciples, the dreams of the followers of Christ were crushed and destroyed. It became black, dark. In fact, um, throughout history, we have often called this Holy Sabbath Black Sabbath. Not after the musical group. They got the idea of the name from history. But this was the blackest of Sabbath. This was the lowest time possible. These were people who were discouraged and despondent, who uh, were in despair. For their dreams had been shattered and destroyed. 
But it had you noticed, and John is very concerned about little words and little ideas that he throws into the story. It was still dark. Mary is headed to the tomb, and it is still dark. Perhaps the resurrection has already taken place or will take place in the next moments as she makes her way to the tomb. But the, it is still dark. And we'll, as we look at the story, we find out that even when she gets to the tomb and finds that it is empty, it's still dark. That for the disciples, it is still dark. That even for the next week, for some of the disciples, it is still dark. And I wonder if it is still dark for us now 2,000 years later. I have never seen a um, time in my history, 70 years, that is quite as dark and dismal as our world is today. All sorts of things that confound us and confuse us and drive us nuts. Things that are making our world dark. Everything from the war in the Ukraine to the confusion in Washington to um, COVID, a thousand things. And then a thousand things in our own personal life as we encounter loss and illness and as we get up in years, as the years pass. Darkness, it's still around. Yet, in the midst of that darkness, something has happened that is so profound and so amazing that it should turn all of our darkness into light, should turn all of our problems into solvable solutions. And that's what Mary finds a minute later. She gets to the grave and she finds that it is open. She looks in and Jesus is gone. And you know the situation, darkness turns even darker for her as she realizes that Jesus is now gone and she has no idea where he is. And so she turns from there and runs back to the disciples. Runs as quickly as she can to tell the news. Though it's not good news, she tells the news that Jesus is gone. The disciples react immediately. <clears throat> as anticipated from our understanding of Peter, he responds most... Uh, overtly. He jumps up, puts his shoes on, and starts running for the garden tomb. John joins him immediately, and they race to the tomb. How fast they ran. How fast are you headed to Jesus? How fast are you running to the tomb of Christ? We read the story, and we find out that John, though other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, which is an interesting insight there and interesting that it comes up in this context, outruns Peter. And you know the story. He runs and gets to the tomb. Peter, a little slower, gets there a little bit later. And when he gets to the tomb, there's two interesting words. He stops, he stoops down to look into the tomb. And he waits. I am fascinated by that. And I think it is significant that that word is there. That he stoops and looks. 
He takes some time to figure out what is happening. Stooping is, of course, involving a little bit of humility because um, the passageway is a little bit lower. Here's the situation. In those days, they dug out a cave out of the limestone. The rich people did, at least. Uh, poor families, they would find a cave and they would find a way to block the entrance to that cave and they would put their dead in there. But for those who were richer and had the time and influence, they would hire somebody to carve out a, a limestone cave, a little tunnel. And there would be a bench in there and a place to lay their dead. And the tradition was that they would lay their dead upon this bench or this table, whatever it was, and uh, then they would wrap them in linen wrappings, putting in what perfume, what incense, what spices they had to increase the smell, I mean to hide the smell and to make it smell better. And then they would lay that body on that table and um, come and visit. Usually for about the first month. For the Jewish family, that first month was very significant. At the end of the month, they believed the spirit had gone and left. And so they would come and, uh, of course, you'd want to see the face of your loved one. And so the rest of the body is wrapped up in some linen cloth, but um, more like a mummy, as we would envision, as an Egyptian mummy. But the face had just a single cloth that they could take off, and so they could look at it. As Peter, as John looks into the, the <clears throat> tomb, he sees exactly where they've laid Jesus. He sees exactly where they've left him. And he sees the grave cloths are still there, right in the same form that it had been in. But Jesus is not in them. Peter comes up, running up, out of breath, and it goes right into the tomb goes right in and begins to look around. And he too sees these cloths that they, this linen cloth that they had wrapped Jesus in. Luke tells us that when, um, when they left the tomb, Peter was wondering what had happened. But John went in, following Peter in, and it says that he saw and believed. What did he see? What did he believe? He evidently saw these grave cloths that Jesus had been wrapped in. And somehow they were not now in disarray and disorder throughout the, the tomb, but were exactly as they had laid them. And somehow Jesus had come through them and uh, had exited the tomb. Somehow Jesus had taken the time to fold up the cloth that covered his face and uh, put that neatly on the side. And it says he saw and believed. Then comes one of the most beautiful verses of scripture. I memorized it this week. It's not too difficult to memorize. In my translation, it's only four words. I remember when I was a kid, I had a, a, a Sabbath school class probably as a junior or maybe even younger, and they wanted me to find, wanted us to find a verse of scripture to remember, to memorize that Sabbath morning. I remember I chose uh, that one in John, the shortest verse in scripture, Jesus wept. Well, easy to remember. This one is just as easy to remember. 
and equally significant. Four words. John comes out, he sees and believes. Peter is still wondering what has happened. And then it says, then they went home. I chose this for our title, like, unable to find a better title than this. Then they went home. Now, if you remember, they're in Jerusalem. Their home is not in Jerusalem. Where is their home? Their home is in Galilee, far away. But it says they went home, not to a building, not to a house, not to their regular place of uh, resonance, but they went home spiritually. And I want us to focus upon that. Have we found the spiritual rest that God offers us, that the resurrection offers us? Talking with one just this last week at lunch, she mentioned that she is so concerned, she's so fearful of the final events that we have grown up as Adventists talking about and thinking about and knowing about. How are we ever going to be able to survive if we can't even buy or sell? If we turn to digital currency and all the rest that is happening in the world around us, how will we survive financially? I don't have a good answer other than we have to trust the living Savior. We have to trust the resurrected Christ to take care of us in our times of need. What are the answers to the disasters that surround us, the darkness that surrounds us, the chaos that our country is in? I believe the answer is the resurrected Christ. That he and he alone can offer to us the peace and the comfort and security that will get us through the times of trouble. There's a very fascinating verse in um, the book of Ruth, of all places, about rest. If you remember the story of Ruth, it starts out that um, the fa Ruth's father-in-law has died. Naomi's husband has died. And then Naomi's two sons die. And all that is left are these three widows. Naomi is going to return home and try to go back to, to Judah and to home and find life. And she says to her daughters-in-law in chapter 1, verse 9, My hope for you, my wish for you, my desire for you is that you may find rest in the home of your husband. New Living Translation says security, that you may find security. The disciples, Peter and John, leave the garden tomb and they go home. I think it's a lot bigger than anything we've ever imagined. They went home to a place of security, of peace, of a future and a hope. They went home to family. They went home and found that they were truly at home. The story goes on that uh, they go on their way and Mary comes back to the tomb. And remember that Mary comes back to the tomb and she looks inside and, and now she sees two angels. Two angels sitting in the tomb where Jesus had been buried. One where his head was, one at his feet. Two witnesses. Witnesses to tell that Jesus is gone. Why are you crying? They ask. 
And she responds, because they've taken my Lord away. Because Jesus is gone, what am I going to do? Where is he? How can I find him? She turns and to walk away, and she sees someone there in the garden. And she assumes that it's the gardener. And it's interesting that John gives us this fact because he's trying to take us home. He takes us immediately back to the Eden home, back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve started in a garden. This person, Jesus, her eyes are dimmed so she cannot tell who it is. People ask, why did God do that? Because it's a teaching moment. And he blinds us sometime Time so that we can learn the deeper, closer message. She says to him, she, he says to her, why are you crying? What's the problem? She tells the story. I came looking for Jesus and he's gone. Where is he? Tell me where he is, is so I can take care of him. And Jesus says, Mary, our God, our risen Savior, knows our name. Uh, is there anything more profound than that? He calls us by name. He knows us by name. And as he says that, Mary recognizes that this is not a gardener. This is not some stranger. This is her teacher, her rabbi, her Lord, her Jesus. And she immediately grabs and hugs him. At least that's what I would do. And what follows is, of course, a verse that's a bit confusing and a bit misleading for us. Don't hold me back. Don't just detain me. No, I don't think that's the message that was given at first. I'm sure that Jesus welcomed that hug and gave her a hug back and was delighted that she recognized and was so excited to see him. Because he was also excited to see her because he sees her in different light than he's ever seen her before too. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Rabbi, Rabbi, and they hug. After a moment or two, a few minutes, he sets her back a bit and says, Mary, relax. I'm here, I'm alive, I'm real. But I have to still go back to the, still go to the Father. Please notice that before Jesus ascended and went back to the Father to tell, to talk over with the CEO what had happened, to talk over the effects and the, the affairs and the issues of Easter, of Good Friday and etc. he spent time waiting for her and met her there. And then he says, go and tell my brethren, go tell my brothers where I'm going and that I will meet them in Galilee, that I'll meet them at home. Meet them in Galilee, meet them at home. Tell my brothers. And undoubtedly he included her, my, included my brothers and my sister, my sisters. Because now for the first time he calls us brothers and sisters. Check that out in your scriptures. That this is the first time that Jesus calls us 
brothers and sisters. Now he's called us disciples. His disciples, he's called them disciples. He's called us sheep. He's called us his friends. Those are all great things. But something has now happened that he calls us his brothers and sisters. He calls us family. This is what has been predicted and promised from the very beginning of the Gospel of John. In chapter 112, I think it is, they, were, they didn't believe. People didn't believe. But his purpose was to help them to become children of God, brothers and sisters of Jesus. <clears throat> Mary went back and told the story. And to continue the story, we'd have to go to Luke. And in Luke, we would look at the road to Emmaus. And you remember the story there. Two men who are journeying to Emmaus, home seven miles away from Jerusalem. They are talking amongst themselves what has happened. They're talking amongst themselves about the events of the weekend, how their hopes were dashed and demolished, how um, they were going through a black time, a dark time. It was still dark. And somehow, uh, some, somewhere along that seven-mile journey, a stranger joins them. I love the story. As the stranger falls into step with them, listening to their conversation, and says to them, what are you talking about so intently and so earnestly? And Cleopas, one of the two, um, says immediately, you must be the only person in all of, the, of Jerusalem or Judea that doesn't know what has happened, doesn't know the things that have taken place over this weekend. And this stranger, which we know is Jesus, says, of course, what has happened? Tell me. And they begin to tell the story. How Jesus, their hope of salvation, their hope, their Messiah, had been betrayed by the leadership of, his, of their society, had been turned over to the Romans and been crucified, had been murdered. But that's not the rest of the story, they say. This very morning... We heard some confusing messages and confusing news. Some women had been to the tomb to uh, pay their tribute, and the tomb was empty. What has happened? We don't know. What follows is the Emmaus Road discourse, which was one of the most fascinating in the story. Oh, you foolish people, says Jesus. Don't you remember what the Bible says? What the Bible predicted, what it taught? That before the Messiah could enter his glory, before the Messiah could claim his throne, he would have to go through suffering and death. And he began to teach them from the words of Genesis, of Psalms, especially Psalms 22. Jeremiah and Zechariah and Malachi. The predictive information that said that the Messiah would have to suffer and die. In fact, that was the whole purpose and whole reason of his coming. As they journeyed on, I'm guessing that the second half of the journey was far easier than the first half and went far quicker. And they finally get 
to Emmaus. Sun is setting, day is over. And um, Jesus, in the form of the stranger, pretends that he is going to go on his way. And they said, stop, stop. Please come home with us. Please come home and have dinner with us and stay with us. And Jesus, of course, agrees. They get to uh, the home of Cleopas and his, probably his brother and um, inform the women that they have a guest for lunch or dinner and the children gather around and I can even see Jesus uh, taking one of the little ones in his arms because he's not afraid of that. And that's what he cherishes and desires and loves so much. They finally get dinner ready. Maybe the the family members in the next houses have been invited in also, who knows, but they sit down at the table. Sir, would you please ask the blessing and prayer for us? Of course, delighted to. And he prays, and then he begins to break the bread. And as he breaks the bread, they recognize that this is no stranger. This is Jesus. They know him. They know him. They're at home with him and he disappears. They quickly get up from the table and say, it's the Lord. We have to go tell the brothers and sisters what has happened. And so they jump up, put their shoes on, run down the road seven miles back to Jerusalem. Get to the upper room, and the story carries on in John, that they get to the upper room and they knock for the door is locked because the disciples, the followers of Jesus are afraid. Finally, they're let in and even before they can say a word, somebody says, Jesus is alive. Peter has seen him. No mention of the women, but Peter has seen him. We don't know that story. That story is not included in our Bible. And then these men, these two from Emmaus, began to tell the story. We were walking, we met a stranger. He talked to us about the Old Testament. He talked to us about the prophecies concerning the Messiah. Our hearts warmed and burned. And then he revealed himself by breaking bread with us. And suddenly Jesus appears. Suddenly Jesus appears in that room and they're all shocked. And I love what Jesus says, his opening words. Uh, worth memorizing. Also, peace be with you. Be at peace. In fact, we find he says this over and over again. We find that that is the quality of home. You're at home. You're at peace. You're at a place where you can rest, where you're secure, where you don't have to worry about all the things that we in this world find to worry about. They have their interview and talk. Uh, there's one that is missing, and we know who that is. That's, of course, Thomas. And we know that Thomas is the twin, clearly identified as a twin. Some people want to make him the twin of Jesus. I don't find any biblical support of that. In fact, I find it far more precious that he is our twin. He is our twin. He is the doubter. 
He has said very clearly, I can't believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. He wasn't there that first time when Jesus appeared. He, until I see the nail prints in his hands and put my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe it. No way. Is that like you? Do you persist in your unbelief? Are you stubborn? Karen knows how stubborn I am. Jesus appears a week later. For another week, Thomas, our twin, is in the dark. He's in misery. Until Jesus comes the second time. And this time specifically goes to Thomas. Goes to him and says, Thomas, be at peace. Look at my hands. Put your hand in my side. And as Thomas put his hand into the wound in Jesus' side and felt the heart beating, he says, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. He's the first of the disciples, evidently, to verbalize that profound thought. That this risen one is more than just Lord. He is more than just rabbi. He's more than just our brother who has come up from the grave. He is none other than God. Now that should make you pretty comfortable. That should put you at peace. That should take you home. And I believe it does. Then they went home because now they realize fully and completely that Jesus is in charge, that he is none other than God, and he is bigger than any of our problems, any of our crises, any of our worries, any of our concerns. He cares for us. Clark read our scripture this morning out of Hebrews, and if I can figure out how to get there, I will refer to it one more time. Hebrews chapter 2. And starting in verse, nope, I hit 9 instead of 2. Starting in verse 9. What we do see, what we do see is Jesus who was given a position a little lower than the angels. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, please notice, the effect, the cause of his grace, the cause of his humiliation was God's grace. Jesus tasted death for everyone. God for whom and through whom everything was made chose to bring many children into glory. And that was only right that he should make Jesus through his suffering a perfect leader to fit, fit to bring them into their salvation. The perfect leader is an interesting Greek word that um, can talk about an author or a leader or a president who leads the way, who directs things. It's often used in terms of a captain in the army. And in the Roman army, the captain 
um, didn't just stay back at headquarters giving orders. The captain went with his men into the fray, giving them an example of courage and strength, giving them moral support, giving them all that they need so they can fight the battle with him. That is the perfect leader that Jesus is. So now Jesus, the one, Jesus and the ones he ha makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, we can come home to Jesus. We don't need to worry about any of the problems of this world. He is victorious. He is the risen Christ with all power and all love for us. I invite the band to come back up and hopefully we can contemplate and think on these things. A few words that I found this last week that I will share in closing. Never was God more godlike than when in the person of Jesus he was crucified for our sins. Never did anything more exhibit and never will anything more contribute to the glory of God than his God, capital letter, his making the sun lower than the angels in order to taste death and to bring us home. That's what I believe. And that's what I believe is the message of the resurrection of Christ. That um, the truth, the depth, the greatness of the Sabbath rest is that we now come home to Jesus. We come home with him. They went home. We're at rest. We're at peace. We're secure. We don't have to worry about the chaos of this world. We don't have to worry about the foolishness that we see all around us. For though we may not sense it, because sometimes we're still in the dark, he is on the throne and he is God.